Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Well, that was one of the hardest times, actually, because it, it was. It was now, like, now what? <laughs> Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm doing my stretches. Yes. I'm getting ready for today's interview. I'm warming getting, up. Getting bendy, are you? Getting bendy and limber. <laughs> That's by right. By the end of the episode, I'll be doing a split. Oh, <laughs> wow. May, that would be impressive. I may not get up, but I'll be there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we are talking artistic gymnastics today. That's, and I'm excited to get into a new sport. And it's the World Gymnastics Championships that have been going on this whole week. So it's really nice that we've got an interview with Chelsea Memel. She talked with our contributor, Ben Jackson, and we'll get that to you in a second. But first, we're getting closer to our next book club meeting. So if you don't have a copy of our next book, book, which is called Munich 1972, Tragedy, Terror, and Triumph at the Olympic Games by David Clay Large. There is still time to get your copy. Visit olimfever.com slash book hyphen club and click on the link to get your copy through Amazon, which if you do that, we'll get a little commission from your Amazon purchases and that greatly supports the show. We'll be talking about the book in the beginning of November, so you've got plenty of time to get into it. Which is good because I haven't started yet. <laughs> That's fine. I'm not that far into it, but so far I'm really enjoying it. And we've been talking a little bit about it. But I know listener Meredith has posted some sections, which are cool. But what she did not post uh, and tell me about was the shade that Cleveland received. Well, that's just not cool. No, it's not cool because uh, I'm in the part where they're talking about the design of the games, which is with our friend Otto Eicher, who we learned about from our very first episode. My and, friend Otto. Yes. So he designed pastels because they absolutely wanted to stay away from the red, the blue, the gold, and purples of Nazi Germany. So he designed the volunteer uniforms to be these baby blue polyester pant jacket ensembles that were complemented by baseball style caps and white canvas shoes. And these were like for the security guards and stuff. So David Clay Large said, 
Who could take seriously security men who were dead ringers for vacationing seniors from Cleveland, Ohio? Huh. Well. Not cool, David Clay Large. Not, not cool. Not does cool he not all. know that Cleveland rocks? It, <laughs> that it does. And that most people are wearing shirts that say how proud they are to be from Cleveland. You know, I do not believe that, especially in 1972, like the steel workers and the things from Cleveland would be wearing pa- uh, baby blue polyester. I don't know. Maybe he walked around a mall once when he <laughs> visited Cleveland and was like, oh, these mall walkers and their baby blues. I could use that one day in my book. So we are excited to talk about the book in a few weeks with Book Club Claire. And also, we were talking about supporting the show with your book purchases. We also want to say a special thank you to our patrons and donors. Patreon patrons get extra content and info about the show. And I'm going to make another announcement there this week about some other new things that we've got going on with the program. Visit patreon.com slash olimfever for more info. And if you would like to support the show with a one-time donation, check out the PayPal link on our support and sponsorship section of our website. And if you're a business, you can look into how to advertise on the show too. I'm excited to see the Patreon announcements so I know what I'm doing for the next few weeks. Today, our interview is with American gymnast Chelsea Memel. She was an alternate for the U.S. team for the Athens Olympics in 2004 and then was a member of the silver medal winning team in 2008 at Beijing. She won the all-around world championships in 2005, beating out eventual Olympic gold medalist Nastia Lukin by one one thousandth of a point. Contributor Ben Jackson spoke to Chelsea about her competitive career and what she has been up to since her retirement. Take a listen. Could you tell me about sort of the history of your of your gymnastics career? Yeah, well, it was both of my parents were gymnasts and then worked and owned a club. So you know, getting into gymnastics was kind of supernatural and a no-brainer because that's where my parents were and that's just where I was and where I grew up and just completely fell in love with it. So I, you know, cut myself really lucky that it was like the place that I wanted to be. And um, yeah, just started doing gymnastics when I was young and just continued. Um, When I was seven, my parents kind of made the not kind of, they did make the decision for me to switch clubs that already had an elite program going. And then, so I was there from when I was seven until I was 16. And then after making alternate in Athens is when I kind of came home and then had, had my, asked my dad to start coaching me. You were kind of born to the family business. Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like at some moment, though, you sort of came together with both the idea that this is what you wanted to do, but also that you could do it at a high level. Do you have a memory of kind of of what that moment was or how you knew that this is more than just the, the family business or this is more than just something I'm going to do? This is something I'm going to do at the top levels. Well, I guess I had that a little inkling. I mean, like when you're seven, it really doesn't (laughs) register that much. But then it was like, because my my parents had seen the talent in me at that young age. And because I was progressing through the levels pretty quickly. So then it was like, oh, this, you know, this is a little bit more serious. And I'm trying to think too, like other things like 
a lot of people ask, like, oh, when did you make it, like, a goal to be in the Olympics? And I always thought it was cool, but it wasn't a reality to me. Like, oh, my goodness, like, I could actually make an Olympic team until after Worlds in 2003 when I made, you know, ended up competing in the World Championship team. So then it was like, oh, (laughs) this isn't just something that's, like, far-fetched. This is a real possibility of making an Olympic team next year. And so you've competed at Worlds and the Pan Am Games, and and you've won a number of medals and and world titles. And 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 at the same time, you've you've had to deal with your fair share, like any athlete, I think, of of injuries and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what was it like to be at that high level and then have those change-ups where, okay, now I can't compete. And then at the same time, you're trying to balance just being a a normal, all the normal person stuff like going to school and all of those things. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I, sometimes it's a little bit hard, but looking back, it was just like, it's just kind of what you do. You, you, you figure it out, you know, learning the time management of winning, when to get things done and things like that. Um, my parents were super helpful, super supportive, always. It, I don't know. I know the other question I get, well, did you miss out on things as a teenager? And I was like, I don't really ever look at it like that. I always look at it as look at all of the things that I got to do instead of look at all the things that I didn't get to do. Like I've, got to compete, I got to see the world, I got to represent my country, doing the thing that I love. Like, how lucky is that, that I found something that I did happen to be good at and that I loved, you know, and reached the highest level of the sport. So I just always look at it as look at what I got to do instead of what I didn't. So I think that made it easier, too, when you love something. It doesn't feel like you're doing as much work. It is a ton of work. Uh, Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't I don't know. It doesn't feel like, oh, my gosh, do I have to do that again? Right, right. So, <laughs> and, and this wasn't your parents pushing you. This was no. you did it and, and you found a love for the sport. Absolutely. They And they put me in other sports just to try or to see, you know, how things would go. And it would just it just always came back to gymnastics. So they were they never were like, you have to do gymnastics. It was always this is your choice. And we and they supported me like one thousand percent in it, um, which I'm so grateful for. But it was never them, you know, pushing me that I had to do it. And were they on Olympic teams? Um, nope, they both um, were did gymnastics in college. Okay. And when you at, at one point looking at your bio, you had switched from one coach and and had your father coaching you. And I read an interview where you said the gym was the gym and home was home. Um, How important was that for you in terms of just kind of managing the pressure and and being able to develop the skills for success? Well, it was really important to have, you know, to kind of keep things separate. And that was, that was one of the things that we had set right away when my dad started coaching me was to not kind of let, you know, Jim creep into our home life. And it always does because it's our entire family is in the gymnastics world. So, But if there was a bad practice or there was an issue, we, we would always do our best to leave it at the gym. And if either of us did want to talk about, you know, that day or or the next day, it was we'd have to ask permission. I'd be like, can we talk about 
tomorrow? And I'd be like, no, or sure, that's fine. And it, it just kind of respecting that, that boundary. So picking your moments was critical then. Yeah. When we think about gymnastics and we think about, and I'm saying we sort of the royal we of, of people who watch as opposed to people who participate, mm-hmm. it, it often feels like there's kind of one stream of com- competition and coaching and then everybody sort of ends up at the Caroli camp or something like that. And it sounds like you followed a little bit of a different path. Is that a fair perception of the way the gymnastics world works? Or is it is it a lot more diverse than we kind of see as we're watching the Olympics on TV? I mean, like, if you wanted, you know, to make the team, it was going to the national team training camps and, and being part of that. You you were at the ranch. So that that is how it was because that's where the national team training camps were and, you know, the training center. So that's where a lot of the final selection camps were for, for making a team. So that is where you had to be, but it was always, you know, train at home and then go, go down there for the training camps or selection camps. And how much of the coaching style differs? I mean, you know, you're, you're training with someone and you know them, and they know you, and, and in your case, right, if you're training with, with your father, somebody who knows you extremely well, and, yep. and then you have to go work with a different coach. Is that hard to do, or do you have to kind of tell them, you know, tell these people at the national camp, hey, this is sort of how I do things, or how does that work? You're with your your personal coach on each event and each rotation. There is national staff there to kind of help guide you, and they're, you know, also kind of training guidelines of numbers that they wanted. Um, but you're never just thrown into having somebody else coach you. Okay. So let's talk about the Olympics a little bit. So your first kind of approach to the Olympics was, was Athens, you said, right? Yes, it was Athens. Um, I made alternate. And it was that was tough. Was it? So when you say that was tough, was it just, you know, you so close yet so far away, or, or yeah. was there yeah, something it, that you felt you could have done? Well, no, it was actually quite an accomplishment to be on that team because I had broken um, my foot in April of that year and was in a cast for six weeks. And then, so it was, it was actually quite an accomplishment to, to make it even back to or up to the alternate spot. But it's still, that's just not a fun place to be in, to know that you've gotten so close but just not quite on the team. So that was that was really tough. And so how did you come back from that and say, okay, I was close. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a moment where you said, well, maybe maybe I'm done doing this now, or or was it I'm I'm looking ahead four years and I've got a plan and a goal? It was tough. It was you know coming back and just trying to figure. It was, there was that moment of trying to figure out like. Am I going to continue doing this at this level? You know, am I going to be done altogether? But it was like I, you know, after taking those few days of, of thinking, it was like, no, I really do want to make an Olympic team again. So, or not again, but I want to have another shot. So that is kind of what ultimately still that dream of, of knowing, you know, that I got so close that it still was a possibility that I could make a team. Um but also knowing that it would be tough because four years is a long time in the sport. Well, and I wanted to ask that in, in that 
in 2004, and I have a hard time planning, you know, two weeks out, much less four years out. How do you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to plan this. I've got a goal. It's going to be four years. How do you do that? Well, that's just kind of like that ultimate goal, but then it's breaking it down like, you know, okay, to start with 2005, making the goal of, you know, the world championship team and having the training plan set for that. And then it was always keeping the Olympics in mind, but that's, that's almost too far to like totally plan. So it was just making the smaller plans and goals in front of it. Okay. So you're doing it piece by sort of small bites gets you yes. all the way through. Okay. Yes. So you, you make the, the 2018 and you head to Beijing yep. and I want to sort of, kind of set the the picture a little bit for for some of our listeners in that you in 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 the Pan Am games and and in the world competitions you're doing all around stuff you're you're boosting teams by your scores and floor exercises and and the beam and other things and then tell us what happens in 2008 in Beijing Yes. So I, you know, came off really great Olympic trials. I was feeling really good. It was, you know, the best, I think, gymnastic shape that I had been in. And um, our second day training in Beijing, I broke a bone in my ankle on floor. Ouch. Yeah. At first, I, you know, I didn't think it was too, too bad, but um, it, you know, kind of continued. And then it was like, well, I, I really need to go get this checked out. So we went to you know, like the medical center to get the x-rays in the village and saw, yeah, that there was like the small, the small break or fracture. And um, then it was kind of pretty much out of our hands, like what we were going to do if, if I was going to be able to stay on the team or, you know, what would I be able to contribute if I could do bars. So the coaches, um, they all, and, and Marta had a meeting and decided that if I could still do bars, they wanted, you know, me to stay in the team. So uh, that evening training, I had to be able to show a bar routine um, without, at least without a dismount. They, I didn't have to land on it that night. So that was, that was like the most mentally trying day there for sure because it was so many ups and downs. Uh, you know, this huge, huge down of getting hurt and then like, okay, you still have a shot to be on the team. And then, you know, putting all my focus on being able to do a bar routine and show it for them um, to, you know, fight for that, to keep that spot on the team. So what is going through your mind as you, you're going for these x-rays, you're going to Mm -hmm. prepare for the, you know, gee, how bad is this? What, What do you think? What do you do? It was just hard. It was just I myself, like, needed to know what we were dealing with, and I knew that ultimately could lead to me being taken off the team, but I needed – I just needed to know what was what was wrong because it wasn't just, you know, oh, a little tweak. I did know it was a little worse than that. So it was really, truly, like, just needing to know what we were dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew, like I said, I knew if – it was something like really, really bad that I could be taken off the team and it would be out of mine or even the coach's hands. Right. Well, and so 
I guess a little bit of call it fatalism got you through, right? You understood this is what it is. Yeah. Um, but they're talking about putting you on the bars, and I realize, okay, you're you're uh, you're a pro at this. You've had a ton of of success. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you've had your own trouble with bars, right? You had injured your shoulder and you had mm-hmm. torn a bicep. Is that right? Yeah. So the yeah, before the Olympics, it was my rotator cuff and my labrum. And then it was after that, it was my bicep. Yep. Okay. And so did, did that give you any pause or it was, I want to contribute no. any way I can? It, no, I wanted to just be able to contribute. Okay. That wasn't, yeah, that wasn't in my head at all. And so... You you did get on the bars. You yep. competed there. Yep. Um, and you helped Team USA win a medal, win the silver there. And yeah. this feels like a terribly cliche question, but how did it feel to be able to, was it, oh, I, I feel like I really helped by doing this, or, gee, I really wish I could have contributed more, or was it just you were kind of caught up in the elation of meddling? Um, it was kind of, it was all of it, honestly. It was all of it because there was always that little disappointment that we didn't quite, you know, get the gold and, and, you know, win, you know, for the team, for our country and everything. And, yes, I was I was still disappointed that I wasn't able to contribute, but also, you know, so ecstatic that I was at least able to do bars and be a part of the team and win a silver medal. So it was it was kind of all of that. It, it sounds like quite the quite the you know in, intense kind of moment yeah. um so you live through this moment and and you've got the medal and and you've you've competed at an olympics mm-hmm. so you've looked forward four years and in, in 2004 to 2008 what do you do in 2008 how do you what do you think and what are you planning to do next like you've got your medal now what well, that was one of the hardest times, actually, because it, it was. It was now, like, now what? <laughs> what do I do? My entire life has, has been gymnastics and, you know, always kind of geared towards making this goal and this dream happen. Um, and it's it's a really, yeah, it's really, it's tough and it's, it's a little bit depressing when you're done because there isn't the structure and the schedule and, you know, the planning. And it's it's not the most fun time (laughs) (laughs) so what did you do what what was your how did you ultimately come to a decision about what you were going to do next um well I took some time out well we had the post-olympic tour and then um did end up after the tour getting a little pin put in my ankle to you know help it heal better after the tour and then um took some time off of gymnastics just really really trying to yeah figure out if I wanted to, you know, continue doing gymnastics or just be done and try to start normal life. (laughs) Ultimately, I decided, well, I could, you know, try again. So I started training a little bit again and competed just one event in 2010. It was still, I was still kind of like, is this what I want to do or am I just doing this because I don't know what else to do? So, it wasn't, it was just an okay year, but then in 2011 is when I started, I started doing better and training better, but that's it. Championships in 2011 is when I tore my biceps. And so was that, 
Was that when you said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop being a competitive gymnast? Well, I tried to come back. I did try to come back from that surgery and just, it didn't have the best first, you know, the first competition and then wasn't able to do well enough to, you know, go to Olympic trials. Okay. Let's fast forward a little bit then. Mm -hmm. You stopped competing and and now here we are in, in, in 2019 and you are doing one-legged squats on uneven bars. <laughs> you're you're flipping. You're doing amazing stuff, and it's super impressive to to see these things. And and so, have you kind of been doing this all along, or or did you sort of stop and then say, you know what, I need to get back in the gym? How did how did sort of gymnastics for adults come to you? Well, I did stop for a bit, not you know, not really flipping or doing anything for a while. I had my son in uh, February of 2015, and then I did a a little bit. I was starting just to get just, you know, back into better shape after that, and then had my daughter in 2017, and just was, yeah, like I said, wanting to get back into better shape and feeling better, and it wasn't to be able to do gymnastics. It was just to feel good, Um, and for me, my fallback is 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 being in the gym and that's like the conditioning and the training methods that I know like going into a regular like actual workout facility I I don't feel the most comfortable because I don't really go in those ever so I was just in my comfort zone at the gym just getting in better shape and once I was you know getting in better shape it was like flipping just was kind of like oh I should try this because it's fun Well, you realize that that you're getting in better shape seems pretty superhuman to a lot of us. I mean, <laughs> those, and and I would encourage all of our listeners to go look at these videos, but they're amazing in that, you know, I I, I feel like there's and it would be great if you could sort of talk a little bit about this combination. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of strength, there's a lot of flexibility, yeah. there's a lot of endurance. Yeah. Um, and I've seen like you have your your, your five minute cardio challenges, but mm-hmm. but when you go into the gym, and and gym obviously for you like you say is different than it is for somebody like me where there's you know kind of treadmills and arm machines and leg machines. Yeah. What are your thoughts each day, and 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 what are your kind of training goals each day? I'm I'm honestly just doing it to just to feel better, um, and I'm like really happy with like my progress because it's it's taken a while because I'm trying trying to think because we really started it's been over a year now so it 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 was gradual and you know starting just like with the stretching and very light conditioning and then kind of the the Chelsea challenges were just kind of you know born into that and it was just like a way to challenge myself and then also you know the girls that I work with and I continuing and constantly and surprising myself with what I'm able to do, like just strength wise like that. But yeah, there was like the foundation that was laid of the training with that. And I don't, I usually don't go into the gym with like a plan or an expectation because I am coaching and it just kind of depends on what is like the best schedule for the girls. And I usually just kind of hop in when they're doing like their conditioning and then we do know, like, we have the Chelsea Challenge days that are kind of set, so they know it's coming when it's going to be, you know, something different that we're all going to try together. But, yeah, so I'm not really – I'm not. it's not like I'm in the gym 
working out for four hours. It's kind of picking and choosing, you know, what I'm doing in between coaching or what I'm doing, like, with the group conditioning-wise. And the biggest thing, too, that I think makes a difference is actually focusing on, like, the form and technique of of when I'm conditioning and knowing that I'm working the right muscles instead of just trying to make it through. It's, like, really focusing on the muscle groups that I'm that the exercises are meant for. Um, okay. so that's what I think is making the big difference too, is just, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're training, you're training young gymnasts now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Have you done any training? Has, has anyone said, Hey, look, if you're doing gymnastics for adults, can you teach me how to, how to flip or do a cartwheel or, or that kind of thing? Or is there, is there an age at which, Look, Ben, you're 44. I'm not going to be able to teach how to flip. You just don't have the the history and the flexibility and the strength. I don't ever like to say that to people because you can. It's it's like I said. Like I'm still surprising myself with what I can do. And even if you don't have the history or or that much experience in gymnastics, you can you you don't start with flipping. You start with like the stretching and the conditioning, and you kind of build it up. So it 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 is amazing what you could do you know with putting and it's a lot of work putting a lot of work into it and training into it I just and it's for me it's just it's so much fun and for and I think for other people too it's just it's something new it's something different so are are you training adults at all then have you had anybody come to the gym and say gee I'm tired of being on the treadmill I'd like to do something else no not yet um I've I have people reach out for like tips or things and stuff on on social media and I always, you know, I try to answer them cuz I think it's it's so awesome. I would like to get it into our gym. It's just figuring out the schedule and everything, but I think it would be really fun to, you know, to have an adult class. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be really neat to to sort yeah. of see this. So one of the things that our podcast does is, of course, we try to educate fans about how to watch the sports and, and watch mm-hmm. what's going on. As you think about this and, and you're coaching and, and you've been to the Olympics and you've seen plenty of other competitions, when somebody is watching gymnastics, what should they be looking for? What are the things that they might not think about? that they should kind of watch for to really understand what's going on? Well, like for gymnastics, it's just, for us, it's always a goal to, you know, to make it look easy and effortless with, like, the great form with the tight legs and the pointed feet and, you know, the solid landings. It's always things like that. And the difficulty nowadays is is getting crazy. (laughs) But just looking for, like, the performance quality, and that's kind of, tends to set people apart and it's a little bit harder now for sometimes for the general public to just follow along because of how the scoring system is with the difficulty and the execution Um, because you could be looking at an incredibly beautiful routine but their difficulty may not be as high so they're not going to have the highest you know overall score right but when you when you look at them together yeah Oh, I'm sorry. Well, what I wanted to ask was, can you sort of what what kinds of things show that the difficulty is ratcheted up a little bit? Um, just well, obviously we have Simone, and she's just doing things that are are absolutely insane and amazing. But just looking at 
like some of her routines, especially on floor, you know, compared to others. Um, Jade is actually very close to Simone, too, on floor. You know, so what they're doing, some of their passes, you know, are just incredibly, incredibly difficult. And, you know, well, when you look at it, you know, the normal routine has a couple double flips or a lot of the routines have a double pike and a double tuck, and Simone doesn't even do that. Hers are even harder than those two passes. So Simone's easiest pass is is harder than everybody else's. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I think that's all of my questions. Is there anything that we didn't cover that that – people should know either about you or gymnastics or gymnastics for adults or all of the things that we've talked about, anything that we've missed or you wish I would have asked? Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think so. I, I don't, and I, I just don't ever think it's, you know, too late to, to try something new or I don't know. I, I always think it's a good time to, to be doing something that you love. Okay. Thank you so much, Chelsea and Ben. You can follow Chelsea on Instagram at cmemel23 and on Twitter at cmemel. We'll have links to those and links to her YouTube channel in the show notes. And you can see some of the Chelsea challenges for yourself and her Friday fun of standing on the bars and doing some squats. You know, like you Uh do. (laughs) <laughs> like you do. I wanted to mention, she mentioned a couple of names in the interview. Um, she said Simone, meaning Simone Biles, the current Olympic and world and everything champion. Uh, she mentioned Jade, who is American gymnast Jade Carey, and Marta, who is Marta Caroli, who at during her time was the head coach of the U.S. women's gymnastics team. Because we're all on a first name basis. Yeah, right. It's a little world. Hi, Marta. <laughs> Now she's probably going to throw something at me and, you know, make me do <laughs> some pull-ups. Yeah, there or you make go. me do one of those Chelsea challenges. Those things are crazy. I know. Gosh, if you have done a Chelsea challenge, let us know. I want to hear about that. You can, yeah, yeah. Let I us know see if you the video. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to hear all about that. Okay. So a few weeks back, we talked about how confused we were about how teams are qualifying for the gymnastics. For the Olympics. Final, okay. For the Olympics. Okay. So how so does it go? I did some reading and some research, and also because now the world championships are happening right now, we have answers to who the teams are going to be. Okay, good. So the first big change was that the number of gymnasts on a team has been reduced from five to four Mm -hmm. to allow for the number of teams to increase from eight to 12. Oh, okay. So now you have more teams of fewer gymnasts. Okay. So you're fighting for that diploma. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that there is no guaranteed diploma now in the team competition. Okay. So to get to be one of these 12 teams, it's the medalists from the 2018 world championships. Okay. So that's the U S China and Russia. Okay. Okay. Then from this year's world championships, it's the next top nine countries. Okay. So it worked out that the U S China and Russia were again, the team medalists. Okay. So, and then you've got slots four through 12, which are going to be France, Canada, the Netherlands, Great Britain, Italy, Germany, Belgium, Japan, and Spain. Japan does not get an automatic entry. As really? The nation. No. They had to earn their spot just like everybody else. Wow. That's really interesting because almost every other sport, it's the automatic entry. Yes. 
Wow. They had to earn their spot, but they did. So that wasn't a big deal. The big surprise team that missed out was Brazil. Which is interesting because they have been up and coming. And I think, didn't they do well in the Pan Ams? Yeah, they did well in Pan Ams and they did well when they were the host country in 2016, but they are not going to be competing. They finished 14th. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Holy cow. And this, so, these are, this is just the team list for the women's side. This correct? is the team list for the women's okay. side. Um, the men's, as we're recording, haven't finished yet. Okay. But the rules, but the, the layout is still the same in terms of how countries qualify. Okay. Same deal where it's the results of the world championships. So if your country qualifies, the national uh, governing body for your country in gymnastics will pick the four athletes. Oh, so it's not necessarily going to be the same four that competed for these worlds. Well, and the U.S. didn't take the same team to this world that they took to the worlds that they qualified in. Correct. And chances, you know, they'll have the Olympic trials, they'll have their selection. So each country will do it a little bit differently, and that's fine. Okay. If you are not selected for your country's team, you can still qualify for individual apparatus. Okay. So you could qualify in the vault or the beam or, and you do that at either this year's world championships or the test event. Oh, okay. So either one is an option and any country can take two more athletes besides their team athletes. Okay. But But those two athletes had to qualify. In that, in the event that they will compete in. Exactly. Okay. So that's where your specialists come in. Okay. Like Michaela Maroney was a vault specialist. Mm -hmm. She would not in this go round be on the team event, but she would have qualified for the vault finals. Right. And in the U.S., isn't Michaela Skinner in that boat? Yes. Didn't she say she wanted to specialize in one event? Yes. And And Lori Hernandez, who was on the 2016 team, has become a beam specialist. Oh, okay. So So she's also training. Right. So certainly in the U.S. and in and Russia as well, there will be a lot of competition for those two specialist slots. Okay, but could a national governing body say we're just taking four gymnasts if we qualified for a team and they could have those four could also do all of the special individual events? Well, they could Right, but would they? But why would they? Yeah. Why wouldn't they take... take, If you can take six, why would you only take four? Because you limit your chances. Right. Okay, so let's say your country, like in Brazil's case, does not qualify for the team event. Mm -hmm. You as an individual gymnast can still qualify to compete in both the all-around and or individual apparatus. So certainly there will be Brazilian gymnasts competing in the all-around. Okay, and you do that again at the World Championships or the test event. Interesting. So it's kind of like how Jacqueline Simino from Artistic Swimming, her team did not make the team event for Rio, but she qualified for the duet. So yes. just two of them went. Yes. And that part of qualification has not changed. Okay. That's been true. So there, because there used to only be eight countries represented in the team event. And there oh, were right, many yeah. more athletes. So that part of it, in quali- the qualifying as individuals have not changed. And the number of gymnasts that will be there has not changed. Okay. So there'll be 98 women and 98 men. 
Okay. Feeding, and that has not changed. They're really just trying to get more countries represented. Which I kind of like, and I get that it makes it harder within your country, but I do like seeing the extra diversity and the extra opportunities for other countries. And gymnastics is one Mm -hmm. of those sports that how it's performed in Brazil and how it's done in Russia and how it's done in the U.S. are very different. And that's exciting because it shows you what you can do with a sport. You get very different styles. And, you know, right now, Simone Biles is just completely dominating the sport, Mm -hmm. which I'm not I'm not a fan of dominant athletes. Okay. I don't enjoy watching some people really enjoy seeing you know once in a lifetime athletes win everything i don't okay i actually like seeing lots of different styles especially in gymnastics which is Mm -hmm. kind of the sport closest to my heart so i'm glad we're gonna see some british and some french and some germans and you know because they compete very differently okay that i can agree with you on that although i do kind of like watching dominant athletes to try to figure out what makes them so dominant? What is that thing that they're elite in their sport, but they're beyond elite? You know, it's that trying to figure out that puzzle, what makes them tick. So I'm just going to point something out to you. Okay. So Michael Phelps, Mm -hmm. one of the most dominant athletes, certainly of our lifetime. Simone Biles, Mm -hmm. one of the most dominant athletes in our lifetime. You want to know what they have in common? Wheaties? ADHD. Oh, they both have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Just throwing that out there. Interesting. So does that make them focus on one event or is it just like they get their I'm not saying energy? I know why, right? but okay. I think that's an interesting coincidence. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's a study done on that. Uh, if not, we just gave somebody else their <laughs> PhD <laughs> dissertation. There you go. Have at it. Well, you know who I am rooting for to make it to Tokyo, and that is Oksana Chuzovitsina from Uzbekistan, the 44-year-old vaulting wonder. Right. She, you know, many, 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 many years ago, <laughs> she decided to stay in the sport as a vault specialist, and she just keeps coming back. I, it's amazing. It is amazing to me and just a testament to what your body can keep doing. And she trains yeah, and she, differently than she used to, but like, she still got it, man. I know. So the as we're recording, the vault final has not happened yet. She has not yet qualified for Tokyo as uh, a vault specialist, but she still can. Mm-hmm. So we're rooting for you. Right. And you will hear on our social media, uh, <laughs> if, if and when she does, we'll be shown for the... Yeah. When? When? All right. When. Yes. Go old lady. You can that's do right. it. <laughs> I can say yes, that that's right. I'm older than she is. <laughs> yep. And you can find that at Olim Fever on Twitter and Insta. All right. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. This is our segment where we update you on what's going on with our past guests who who make up what we call Team Olympic Fever. Our snowboarder Chloe Kim is sitting out a season. She's going to uh, take some time off and be a kid and attend Princeton. So because she's her. like twelve, so know, she's got right. some time. Yeah. So good for her. Take some time, chill. Get Just some be a person for yeah, a while. That's nice. 
Our speed skater, Erin Jackson, was part of the Barbie Be Anything Tour at Walmart. She was at two South Florida locations this past weekend, which was, oh, that's so cool. I mean, because I don't care what people say. When I was a kid, I wanted to be Barbie when I grew up. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad that now they're including the idea of Barbie is all different shapes and colors and sizes and women who are doing lots of different things. And yes. I think that's amazing. Exactly. So the tour winds down this weekend in L.A. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant are back from the wrestling test event in Tokyo, where he had a great time and can give you craft beer suggestions. So if you have those, uh, go on to our Team Olympic Fever Facebook group and hit him up for those. I decided he gave me a long list of beers that he had. Of, of Tokyo <laughs> yeah. beers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... So you're prepared I, for those I have, long days. I have written them down. <laughs> well, it's going to be hot. You need a beer. Do they serve beer cold in Tokyo? Yeah, I think they do. You know, wait. Okay. okay, so when we went to Tokyo back in 2007, we went to this craft beer bar called Popeye, which was so much fun. It's a little tiny bar, and we're sitting, you know, you kind of share big, long tables with and booths with other people. And it was October, so... It was a little getting a little chilly, and these guys had a warm beer that was in the special, like it was heated up. It was in a special glass and everything, and they shared it with us, and it was actually quite tasty. You will not want that. No, I will not want that. Because <laughs> have we finished talking about how hot it's going to be? At the... Apparently no, not, not yet. <laughs> you may come back, like, it may be two weeks of being in a sauna. Gosh, that would be nice. You will make weight for whatever <laughs> event. You'll just be melted. Knock on wood. We'll find <laughs> out. Oh, and finally, contributor Ben and I are going up to Montreal this weekend to run the Tough Mountie Challenge. And one of the race ambassadors for that event is our very own artistic swimmer, Jacqueline Simino. So hopefully we will say hi. Well, good luck. Try not to freak her out by being too excited well good luck with that that's exciting yeah, it's gonna be fun we're it's a 5k with a ton of obstacles so we will see how that goes you're gonna wear your olympic fever t-shirt we do we had we got some new ones from our t public store that's tpublic.com slash stores slash fever we got some nice red ones we're actually going to put up a new logo shirt in the store coming up soon so be on the lookout for that if you've been on the fence we can we can do that. And they now have pins, and I think I just saw that they've got magnets now too. So I love I, magnets. Yeah. Well, there you go. We've got a good I logo. Do. We do have a nice logo. Moving on to some Tokyo 2020 news. This weekend is the test event for BMX racing, so we'll be looking for how that goes as well. And then speaking of obstacles. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing how that course looks. Also, uh, it was the anniversary of the 1964 Olympics this past week, and they lit the 1964 cauldron again. And according to the Asahi Shimbun, they had a little homecoming for the cauldron. They brought it back to Kawaguchi, which is in the Saitama prefecture, and they lit it again. And it's oh, place of nice origin. Oh, what to do. Right? Oh, I would have cried. I, I know. I've seen that. I know. And they had one of the brothers who made the cauldron. So it's Akishiga Suzuki. He was the youngest brother in the Suzuki family that was part of the group that made the cauldron. 
And he's wow. 84 now. Some of his brothers are no longer alive. Oh, he was young. Wow. Oh, that he must have been cool. so emotional. Yeah, so he and, his, he and his brothers and his father uh, made the cauldron. So it was very, very cool. That was a really cool event. I like that. Gosh. Tokyo, you're killing it. In other Olympic news, a uh, little bit of sad news, the architect Roger Talibert, who is known for creating the Montreal Stadium, has passed away. According to the CBC, he was 93 years old and uh, died in Paris after a fall. That's a lot of Olympics that he saw. That is a lot of Yeah, 93. Wow. And yeah, you know, iconic stadium known as the Big O for uh, its donut shape and also the Big O-O-W-E for how much money it cost. But that was not his fault. No, I don't think so. I think the big... There were many other reasons for the cost overruns, but the the stadium is still very cool, a very iconic uh, symbol in Montreal. It has stood the test of time. Exactly. And if you haven't listened to our our episode from last year where uh, Ben and I toured the stadium, take a listen to it because uh, we found out some really fascinating details about the place. And they are working very hard to maintain its legacy and make sure that it gets used. Also... The USOPC has released new guidance on Rule 40. And when we were talking uh, the other month with Carlos Groman about this, we wondered if this was going to be coming down the pike, and it is. So I saw this, and I was... Were you confused? Oh, of course, of course. (laughs) Oh, good, because I found these guidelines to be so nebulous. Mm -hmm. And no, as always, they would have been better off with no guidelines at all. Yeah. Clearly, there's going to be, they're going to have to do a lot of clarification on these. They're very general. It's yes, you can recognize the athlete if you're not an Olympic sponsor, but no, you can't really use them in your advertising. You can say congratulations, but not for what? Because you can't still use the word Olympic. Yeah, you have to be very careful. You can't use any of those marks. You can't write Team USA. It, it's very, you know, it's, it is almost like, okay, you can say thank you, but not really. Either they're going to have to come out with much more detailed guidelines, or it's not going to get clarified until somebody sues. Yeah, so I was reading an article this morning from Victor Mather writing for the New York Times, and he does talk about some of the specifics because he laid it out a little bit more clearly to me than what the USOPC said. Athletes will be limited to seven thank you messages during the games, and that content will be scrutinized like you wouldn't believe. So they can say something like, thank you for supporting my journey, but they can't use Tokyo 2020 or Team USA or Olympics, Olympic imagery, and they can't promote unofficial products. So they could promote Coke, but they can't promote like my Brooks Adrenaline shoes because Brooks is not an Olympic sponsor. So they can't say stuff like, your products are the best. Same goes for like the brands, except for I don't think the brands are going to be limited to seven thank you messages. But they have, they can't use Olympic terms, they can't use Olympic imagery, and they cannot increase the frequency of their ads during the games, which is interesting. Yeah. You, got, you have to wonder, like, do they have a spreadsheet of every athlete that they're sending? Because you, now you're talking about a few hundred athletes... Do they know every sponsor that every athlete has? And will they be monitoring all that to, well, to figure out the level of advertisement before and during the games? Or is it that they want these in place so that they can sue later? Maybe. 
because that's the uh, there's no possible way unless the USO uh, USO PC is spending a lot of money on interns to watch all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Which makes me go, that's not a great use of your money. Exactly. So it'll be interesting to see how it actually plays out in that will non-official sponsors follow the rules? Some will, some won't. Mm -hmm. Are they hoping for just Good Samaritan feelings? they'll go after him. Right, because they also didn't really say what happens if they violate the Rule 40. I mean, the only thing that can happen is that you penalize them financially. You can't kick them off the team. Right, they've already I mean, I guess they could, in theory, strip them of their credentials, but the Olympics would be underway or over at that point. Right. So it's got to be a financial penalty. It doesn't say. So they they also don't know. Like everything else in America, we'll work it out in the courts. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting that the USOPC is really one of the first to come out with guidelines. Right. Beyond Germany, that we haven't really seen much. So they took the lead, which I give them credit for. They didn't wait for everybody else. So it'll be interesting also to see that what now do the other countries do? Okay, so the big fish came out with these very unclear guidelines. Am I just going to come out with nothing? Am I going to come out with something equally as unclear? I think the next few months of this is going to be, because then somebody's going to sue and say, these guidelines aren't clear enough. It leaves too much gray area. You've set us up for failure. And then is it going to get cleared up before 2020? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's really interesting to think about because it kind of reminds me of what happened when they had to add streaming and social media into broadcasting platforms. And do you show streaming live or, you know, when when do they put streaming on and show the events? Do we hold events until the primetime coverage, which is what we've always done? And let everybody be spoiled because the internet will take care of that now. But, you know, it's just kind of a work it out. So it's kind of interesting that they're doing this with with this Rule 40. And I I would not be surprised if the athletes kind of forced the USOPC's hand in saying something because so many athletes need the sponsorship and they need to be able to say thank you to their sponsors. The sponsors need to be able to get some kind of reward from the biggest event on the sporting calendar. Well, we can say thank you to our listeners for supporting us on our journey. That's right. And we're not limited to seven. (laughs) That's right. We will thank you every chance we get. We will. All right. And I think that will wrap it up for this week. What did you think of Chelsea's interview and this year's World Gymnastics Champs? Email us at olimfever at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. You can also hit us up on Twitter and Insta at olimfever. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. So you're fighting for that diploma.